All right, good, good morning. Last, last time we were in Isaiah, a couple weeks ago, we were in Isaiah 62, and what we saw there was, was God giving us a little more information about uh, how he's going to save his people. Today, we're, kinda, we're, we're, we're in Isaiah 63 and 64, but we're jumping back to something that Isaiah said in Isaiah 61, verse 2, which I think we've got a slide here. Uh, so he said that the, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, he was sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So we, we've, we've seen for the past couple chapters in Isaiah, him talking about this year of the Lord's favor, how he's going to save God's people, what he's going to do. Today, we pick up the second part of that, and we're going to read and learn about the day of vengeance. And so if you would flip over to Isaiah 63, we're going to start by reading uh, chapter 63 and 64 this morning. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. The praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go out at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths, Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. 
When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That in it you reveal who you are to us. That we learn that you are loving and compassionate and kind and gracious and merciful. And we also learn that you are are holy and just. And that you are a God of wrath as well as a God of love. And I pray today that you would... Send your spirit to help us to to learn from and benefit from your word this morning. That that we would praise you even for for sections of scripture that make us uncomfortable. Um, That we would um, stand in awe and learn to fear you even in passages where where we see a side of you that that maybe we don't like as much as, as the loving and gracious and merciful side but that we would know that, that you are the God that you are all of the time. That you're always loving, you're always gracious, you're always merciful, you're always holy, you're always just. And that you hate sin and will pour out judgment on it. God, we thank you that the description that we get from Isaiah doesn't have to be our fate but that you did rend the heavens and come down. You sent your son here to die in our place, to to bear your wrath against us and our sin. That that he was condemned so that we could live. God, I pray this morning as we look at Isaiah 63 and 64 that you would stir our affections for you and that you would increase our appreciation for who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So today, we get to find out more about this, this day of vengeance. And so really, there's, there's two, two things happening in our passage this morning. The first is that in Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, he's going to talk more about this, this day of vengeance that's coming. And then Isaiah is going to respond to these things 
by praying, by asking God to do specific things for the people. He's going to ask him to show grace and mercy to them and to do some other specific things. So we'll start with the day of vengeance in the first part of 63. He starts with a question. Who is this who comes from Eden in crimson garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? So someone, Isaiah sees this vision of somebody coming. They're coming from Edom. Edom in the Old Testament, and and we've seen this before in Isaiah, is kind of the the stereotypical place of God's enemies. They're kind of like the, the arch nemesis or one of the arch nemesis of Israel. And so when he says that this person is coming, he's coming from a, from a place of danger for Israel. He's coming to, to attack them. And he says that his garments are both splendid. They're, they're really nice. They're really majestic. They look great. So this person is probably a king of some kind. But these splendid garments are also crimson. They're, they're covered in red. And so Isaiah asks the question, He says, who is this? Who's this person that's coming? And God responds. He says, it's me, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So God is coming from Edom, wearing the garments of a king that are also stained in red. And Isaiah, in verse 2, asks the next logical question. He says, why is your apparel red? Why do you look like you just got out of a wine press? And then the answer that comes is kind of shocking. It's kind of surprising. God says, I have trodden the wine press alone, and from the peoples, no one was. So God has God has been in the wine press. That's why he looks like he's been in a wine press. But then, as we keep reading, it's not grapes that he's been smashing. He said, "I trod them. That's the people in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood is spattered on my garments." So Isaiah sees this picture of God coming from a place of of their enemies to attack them. He's wearing the garments of a king that have been stained in blood. And God tells him that it's because he's been trampling people in his wrath and their blood is all over him. Which is not a vision of God that we probably like as much as all the other ones. Right, of all the pictures the girls have brought home from, from their coloring time uh, during childcare, like this one hasn't come up. It's because it's not something we like to think about. God trampled them down in his anger. He made them drunk in his wrath. He poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So God, in this passage, is, is shown to be one who is pouring out vengeance on the people. And it's specifically a day of vengeance. And I think it's important for us to understand specifically what vengeance is when we think about it in conjunction with God. And the reason why is because for us, vengeance is normally a bad thing, right? There are even places in scripture, like in Romans, where we're, we're told not to seek vengeance. It's not our place. And the reason why is because vengeance is when someone punishes somebody else. But, there, but there's a specific flavor to that punishment. It's somebody that has been wronged punishing somebody that's wronged them or someone who, who has been affected by the wrong punishing someone else. So if someone like hits your car, you get vengeance on them by hitting their car. Uh, you punish them for doing something bad to you. Or if somebody like hurts one of your kids, you have feelings of vengeance come up as you want to hurt them. But the problem for us is that we can't seek vengeance without it being tainted and colored and polluted by our sin. Instead, we're called to trust in God, who is the one who seeks vengeance. So God here is the one who's avenging. Um, Yesterday, I was out in my yard in the afternoon cutting my grass. 
which I already hate doing. And so I'm already in a foul mood cutting my grass. And as I'm on the side of our house, I slip in, uh, in a nice uh, fresh pile of, of dog poop, which, which we don't have a dog. Um, and so I was really mad. I turned off the mower. I went to the backyard. I went to the garage to get a shovel. And I was, and, and I, I was planning in that moment to go shovel it and then flip it into my neighbor's yard, which is like four feet away. But graciously, when I got back there, my neighbor is standing in his yard. Uh, so instead, we have a little conversation where I tell him that, you know, I, there's dog poop in my yard, and he says, it's not my dog, and I grimace, um, and that's kind of the end of the conversation. He says, you know, I always bag mine, but then I go back to cutting the grass, and for the next probably 20 or 30 minutes, I am going over options in my head of ways I can seek vengeance for the huge wrong that has been done to me and my family by this random dog. And then I remember, hey, you're preaching tomorrow. (laughs) And there's a section in the sermon about vengeance and how it's wrong for us to seek vengeance, but God does it for his people. And the the fact that God seeks vengeance, that there is going to be this day of vengeance, this day of reckoning, it, it should be both comforting and discomforting to us, right? When we see this vision described in Isaiah of this God who is covered in blood, it should both discomfort us. We should say, oh, that's scary. That's terrifying that God is that kind of way too. But it should also comfort us. And the reason why it should comfort us is because of things like, ha- that, like, like what happened on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka, right? I'm sure we saw the news that, uh, you know, two, I think it was 250 people died, 500 people were wounded trying to worship God on Easter Sunday. We should take comfort in the fact that God is going to judge those people that caused that to happen. Right? That he, he is going to seek vengeance on behalf of his people. We shouldn't, we shouldn't delight in it. We shouldn't find joy in it. But we should know that our God is going to care for his people. He is going to condemn those who do wrong and mistreat others. It should also discomfort us because we know people we're, we're related to people. We're in relationship with people. We have coworkers. We have neighbors. We have people in our lives who right now have not trusted in Christ. And if they die without placing their faith in him, they're going to meet this God who trods the winepress of his wrath against them. And that should bother us. That should, that should motivate us to be those who are sharing the good news with them that someone else has borne that wrath for them so they don't have to bear it themselves. We should be preaching the good news because we do serve a God who is both gracious but who is also just, who is also wrathful. Isaiah responds to this picture by praying, by asking God to show mercy because that's who he is. So he starts in verse 7. By saying, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness of the house of Israel. At first, this is kind of a surprising turn. Right? Because Isaiah gets this kind of terrifying glimpse of God, and then he's just like, I'm going to focus on the good things. Uh, it's almost like he's, he's just naively approaching this God, but, but what we're going to see as we go through it is that that's not what Isaiah is doing. 
He's not just trying to find the silver lining. Instead, he is, has this fully ordered picture of who God is and who they are, and he's responding in light of this picture of him to ask for grace and mercy for himself and for the people around him. So in the first, first few verses here, in 7 through 9, he acknowledges God's goodness. That's the first thing he does in his prayer. He, he talks about the good things God has done for his people. Here he's just kind of generally talking about God has poured out his goodness on them. He's poured out his grace on them. He's called them his people. They're his children. He's been afflicted with their affliction. He's saved them. He's shown love to them. He's pitied them. He's redeemed them. He's lifted them up. He's carried them. He has been their God. They have been his people. He has been good to them throughout his dealings with them. But then in verse 10, he moves on to the next thing. So first, he acknowledges God's goodness. Second, he acknowledges their sinfulness. He says, but they rebelled. That's his people. Isaiah is putting himself in that group. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So Isaiah acknowledges God's goodness in his prayer, and then he immediately acknowledges his own sinfulness and the people's sinfulness. But then in verse 11, they rem- then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people, so he immediately goes back to acknowledging his goodness. So he acknowledges his goodness, he acknowledges their sinfulness, then he acknowledges their goodness again. But this time, he gets specific. He talks about what he did when he brought them up out of the sea, when he cared for them in the wilderness, when he put his Holy Spirit in their midst. And so he gets specific about the ways in which God has shown grace to them, about how he led them through the desert. And he's done all of this before he's asked for anything. Right, the very beginning of, of his prayer, the only thing he's doing is he's talking about who God is, he's talking about who they are, and he hasn't asked for anything yet. But that's where he turns in verse 15. In verse 15 through the end of the chapter, he gets specific about what he's asking for, what he, want God, what he wants God to do for them. And what he wants God to do is to pour out grace and mercy on the people. And so in verses 15 and 16, he says this. He says, Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Here, as Isaiah is starting to transition to asking God for something, before he does that, what he does is he reminds God about who he is. Right? He tells him that you're our father, uh, you're our redeemer from of old. That's your name. So the question is, why, why is Isaiah reminding God about who he is? Is it because God has forgotten, right, that he's their father, that he's their redeemer? No, right? God doesn't forget things. Isaiah knows that. We've seen that as we've gone through his book. He knows who God is. God knows who God is. The reason why he's recounting these things is because he needs to remember And the people need to remember, and we need to remember that God is our Father, that he is our Redeemer. And so as he's building up to this plea for mercy, as he's building up to ask God to do for the people what they need done, he's reminding them all about who God is, because it's out of who God is that his grace and mercy come. And so he's building up this this picture of who God is before he moves on to ask for specific things. It's in verse 1. One of chapter 4 where he specifically asks him to do something. 
Actually, it's before that. He says, return for the sake of your servants, the tribe of your heritage. Your people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you've never ruled. So he's again acknowledging who they are. He's asking God to return to them. And then he says specifically in 64 verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. What they need... He's realizing this after all this time, after all they've been through in Isaiah, is that what they need is God himself to come down and do for them what they can't do for themselves. Because they're in this cycle that's been repeating again and again and again and again throughout the Old Testament where uh, God saves his people and then they, they trust in him and they follow him for a while and then they rebel and they sin and so God pours out judgment on them and then they repent and God pours out grace on them and then that's good for a while and then they sin again and rebel again and God judges them and this thing keeps happening again and again and again and so what Isaiah is asking God to do is to stop that cycle from repeating. He's asking God to come down himself and to do for them what they can't do for themselves. He's asking God to come down and save them in such a way that it gets them out of this cycle of sin and judgment and rebellion that repeats often in the Old Testament. He's asking God to save them. He's asking God to do for them the kinds of things that he had done previously in their history. Like he says in verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. He says there is no God besides you who acts for those who wait. So he's asking God to act even as they're waiting on him to act. He says that God was angry and they sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? He's again acknowledging their sin. So this, this prayer, it kind of just keeps repeating back on itself again and again and again as Isaiah acknowledges who God is, he acknowledges who the people are, and then he asks God to act because he knows that they can't do anything on their own. In verse 6, he gives them this picture, us this picture of who the people are. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Another translation says a filthy rag. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Here he's acknowledging the, the complete and utter depravity that these people have. Right? Notice, notice the alls. We all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. This, this tells us two things about our relationship with sin as people, as human beings. The first is that it affects all of us. It affects every single one of us. Everyone has this issue with sin. And the second thing that it tells us is that it affects all of us, right? There's not any part of us as human beings that has not been affected by sin. He says, all of us have been affected by it and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That means the very best things that we think that we've done or we think that we do are still tainted and corrupted by sin. And so think, think about your best day. You know, as a, as a parent, as a student, as a spouse, you know, where you feel like you're just killing it. Even on that day, it's like a dirty, gross, grease-filled rag. Because all throughout, even our best deeds and our best motives and the best things we do and the, 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 the greatest acts of kindness that we can do is still tainted by our own selfishness and sinfulness. Because on that day, we thought, 
look at how great I am that I did all of these things. Look at how good I am. Look at how, 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 how a wonderful father I am or a wonderful husband I am or a, um, I'm the best student ever because I did these things. Even on those days, uh, we fade like a leaf and like the wind, our sin takes us away. He says that there's no one who calls upon God's name, nobody who rouses to take hold of God. God has hidden his face. They've made us melt in the hands of our iniquities. God has given them over to their sin. Verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are the work of our hand. He's acknowledging that he needs God to do something. God is the only one who's in place to fix this. He is the one who changes and controls and affects everything. Isaiah says that they're just the clay. And I know that, you know, we've, we've, if we've been in church for very long, we've read the Bible very much, this image of God as the potter and us as the clay, it's, it's not new. It's not different. Um, but I, I don't think that we really understand what it says about us in our relationship to God. I don't think we, we really meditate on the place it puts us in underneath God. Because we think, yeah, like he's, he's the potter, I'm the clay. But I'm a really nice piece of clay. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm the smartest piece of clay there is. I'm the one that's in the best condition to be the most beautiful piece of pottery there is. But clay is dirt. Right? It, it doesn't do anything on its own. It can't do anything on its own. Clay isn't impressive. Clay is nothing on its own without the hands of a skilled potter to make it something beautiful, to make it something better than it is. That's who we are, and that's who God is. We need God to shape us and mold us and make us what we're not because we can't do anything to change our circumstances. Right? Clay can't just turn itself into a pot. It needs someone to do that for him. So God, or Isaiah is asking God to do this. Verse 9, he says, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. Here he's throwing himself at the Lord's mercy. Remember, mercy is different than grace, and that grace is, is unmerited favor. It's God looking at people, and he's giving them what they don't deserve. Mercy is love that's based on the situation of the one that's loved. And so mercy is a situation where God looks at us, he sees our helplessness, he sees our state, he has pity on us, and then takes action. And this is what Isaiah is asking God to do. He's asking God to have mercy. He's saying, look at our situation, right? We, we've done these things, we deserve your anger, we deserve your wrath, but have mercy on us anyway. He says that the cities have become a wilderness, Zion has become a wilderness, uh, the temple has been burned with fire, all the pleasant places have become ruined. He's saying that God has poured out his judgment on them, and now he's asking him to relent, which is what he asks in verse 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Because you've already done this, because you've poured out your judgment for so long, will you now relent and stop treating us this way? He's asking God to have mercy, to, to quit pouring out his judgment and his wrath on them, to instead turn and show them grace and mercy and love, to be their God again, to do what they can't do for themselves, to save them, to show them grace. He's asking God to be who he is after all the judgment has fallen. So what is happening in these two chapters 
is these two things. There's this day of vengeance that Isaiah gets this glimpse of, and then he responds in prayer. He responds in prayer by acknowledging God's goodness, acknowledging their sinfulness, and then asking God to show them grace and mercy. And so I think a way we can respond to this passage is to pray prayers like Isaiah prays. Think that when we pray, we often overcomplicate it. Right? We, we, we want to pray these, you know, these big, huge theological prayers or you know, give this whole laundry list of things that we're praying for. And you know, we've got to do it in the right way and we've got to say the right words and it's got to be perfect or our prayer won't get answered. But the reality is that it's not complicated to pray. In prayer, we need to remember who God is. We need to remember who we are. And then we need to ask God to show us grace and mercy, because that's what we need from him. And so what we see Isaiah doing in this passage in response to this picture of God as this this bloody avenger is that very thing. He's asking God to show them grace after he's remembered who God is and who they are. And again, those reminders are not so that we can remind God about who he is or about who we are. It's so that we can remember who he is and what he's done. And we can remember who we are and why we need him to show us grace and mercy. Because I think that's the step that we most often forget when we pray. Is to remind ourselves about who we are. And I think that it's forgetting that that causes us to forget to pray. Because it's when we're needy and we realize that we're needy that we spend the most time in prayer. We don't pray because we don't think that we're needy. And that's why Isaiah spends so much of his prayer recounting who they are and why they need God to act. That's why he reminds us about who we are and why we need God to act. But I think the most important thing we need to get out of this passage is the the very literal way in which God answered Isaiah's prayer. Right, because when he prays in 64 verse 1 that God would rend the heavens and come down, he's, he's mostly talking about the things that God had done in the past, the ways in which he had saved his people, these, these mighty acts that he, he caused to happen in their presence. But what actually happens is that God does rend the heavens and come down. Right? In Jesus, that's what God is doing. He, he sent himself into the world to save his people. God did come here to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He did come here to stop that cycle of sin and rebellion and judgment and and repetition that happened throughout the Old Testament. He came and, and fixed our issue with sin. He came and answered Isaiah's prayer to have God's wrath against the people appeased by sending his son to bear that wrath. And so when we see that picture of God in Isaiah as this wrathful God who's covered in blood, we need to remember that the wrath that he poured out on Jesus for our sins against us was borne by Jesus. Right? This passage, it's not just a metaphor. It's not just an image. It's not just a picture of God as this wrathful God. He is a wrathful God. And the only reason why we're not in that wine press under his feet is because he sent Jesus to bear it for us. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I think we should remember that. 
And we should remind ourselves that the only thing that saves us is him. It's nothing that we've done for ourselves. We're just that lifeless lump of clay until he intervenes in our lives. So I'm going to pray, and then Sean is going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you that you are our Father, and that you are our Redeemer and our Savior, that you are are the potter and that we're the clay. God, we thank you that even though we have consistently and continually rebelled against you. That we've sinned, that we're, we're all broken, and that every part of us is affected by our sin, that even though that's who we are, that you still sent Jesus to redeem us. Jesus, we thank you that you stood in our place and bore your Father's wrath against us and our sin. We pray today that as we continue in worship, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we respond in song, we pray that you would send your Spirit to help us to respond rightly. That we would celebrate who you are and what you've done for us. And that we would be reminded of how very little our part is in it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.